Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The night passed in quiet. I anxiously watched the opening signs of dawn in order to put the column in motion. We were only a few hundred yards from the point from which we were to attack. The moon disappeared about two hours before dawn and left us enshrouded in thick and utter darkness, making the time seem to drag even slower than before. At last faint signs of approaching day were visible, and I proceeded to collect the officers, awakening those who slept. We were standing in a group near the head of the column when suddenly our attention was attracted by a remarkable sight, and for a time we felt that the Indians had discovered our presence. Directly behind the crest of the hill which separated us from the village, and in a line with the supposed location of the latter, we saw rising slowly but perceptibly, as we thought, up from the village, and approaching in bold relief against the dark sky as a background, something which we could only compare to a signal rocket, except that its motion was slow and regular. All eyes were turned to it in blank astonishment, and but one idea seemed to be entertained, and that was that one or both of the two attacking columns under Elliot or Thompson had encountered a portion of the village, and this that we saw was the signal to the other portions of the band near at hand. Slowly and majestically it continued to rise above the crest of the hill, first appearing as a small brilliant flaming globe of bright golden hue. As it ascended still higher, it seemed to increase in size, to move more slowly, while its colors rapidly changed from one to the other, exhibiting in turn the most beautiful combination of prismatic tints. There seemed to be not a shadow of doubt that we were discovered. The strange apparition in the heavens maintained its steady course upward, one anxious spectator observing it apparently at a standstill exclaimed how long it hangs fire why don't it explode still keeping the idea of a signal rocket in mind it had risen perhaps to the height of half a degree above the horizon as observed from our position when lo the mystery was dispelled rising above the mystifying influences of the atmosphere that which had appeared so suddenly before us and excited our greatest apprehensions developed into the brightest and most beautiful of morning stars often since that memorable morning have i heard officers remind each other of the strange appearance which had so excited our anxiety and alarm in less perilous moments we probably would have regarded it as a beautiful phenomenon of nature, of which so many are to be witnessed through the pure atmosphere of the plains. All were ordered to get ready to advance. Not a word to officer or men was spoken above undertone. It began growing lighter in the east, and we moved forward toward the crest of the hill, up to this time two of the officers and one of the osages had remained on the hill overlooking the valley beyond so as to detect any attempt at a movement on the part of the occupants of the village below these now rejoined the troops colonel west's squadron was formed in line on the right captain hamilton's squadron in line on the left 
while Colonel Cook, with his forty sharpshooters, was formed in advance of the left, dismounted. Although the early morning air was freezingly cold, the men were directed to remove their overcoats and haversacks so as to render them free in their movements. Before advancing beyond the crest of the hill, strict orders were issued prohibiting the fire of a single shot until the signal to attack should be made. The other three detachments had been informed before setting out that the main column would attack promptly at daylight, without waiting to ascertain whether they were in position or not. In fact, it would be impracticable to communicate with either of the first two until the attack began. The plan was for each party to approach as closely to the village as possible without being discovered, and there await the approach of daylight. The regimental band was to move with my detachment, and it was understood that the band should strike up the instant the attack opened. Colonel Myers, commanded the third party, was also directed to move one half of his detachment dismounted. In this order we began to descend the slope leading down to the village. The distance to the timber in the valley proved greater than it had appeared to the eye in the darkness of the night. We soon reached the outskirts of the herd of ponies. The latter seemed to recognize us as hostile parties and move quickly away. The light of day was each minute growing stronger, and we feared discovery before we could approach near enough to charge the village. The movement of our horses over the crusted snow produced considerable noise and would doubtless have led to our detection, but for the fact that the Indians, if they heard it at all, presumed it was occasioned by their herd of ponies. I would have given much at that moment to know the whereabouts of the first two columns sent out. Had they reached their assigned positions, or had unseen and unknown obstacles delayed or misled them? These were questions which would not then be answered. We had now reached the level of the valley and began advancing in line toward the heavy timber in which, at close hand, we knew the village was situated. Immediately in the rear of my horse came the band, all mounted and each with his instrument in readiness to begin playing the moment their leader, who rode at their head, and who kept his cornet to his lips, should receive the signal. I had previously told him to play Gary Owen as the opening piece. We had approached near enough to the village now to plainly catch a view here and there of the tall white lodges as they stood in irregular order among the trees. From the openings at the top of some of them we could perceive faint columns of smoke ascending, the occupants no doubt having kept up their feeble fires during the entire night. We had approached so near the village that from the dead silence which reigned, I fear the lodges were deserted, the Indians having fled before we advanced. I was about to turn in my saddle and direct the signal for attack to be given, still anxious as to where the other detachments were, when a single rifle shot rang sharp and clear on the far side of the village from where we were. Quickly turning to the band leader, I directed him to give us Gary Owen. At once the rollicking notes of that familiar marching and fighting air sounded forth through the valley in a moment were ricocheted back from the opposite sides by the loud and continued cheers of the men of the other detachments who, 
true to their orders, were there and in readiness to pounce upon the Indians the moment the attack began. In this manner, the Battle of the Washita commenced. The bugles sounded the charge, and the entire command dashed rapidly into the village. The Indians were caught napping, but realizing at once the dangers of their situation, they quickly overcame their first surprise, and in an instant seized their rifles, bows, and arrows, and sprang behind the nearest trees, while some leaped into the stream nearly waist-deep, and using the bank as a rifle pit, began a vigorous and determined defiance. Mingled with the exultant cheers of my men could be heard the defiant war-whoop of the warriors, who from the first fought with the desperation and courage which no race of men could surpass. Actual possession of the village and its lodges was ours within a few moments after the charges made, but this was an empty victory unless we could vanquish the late occupants who were then pouring in a rapid and well-directed fire from their stations behind the trees and banks. At the first onset a considerable number of the Indians rushed from the village in the direction from which Elliot's party had attacked. Some broke through the lines while others came in contact with the mounted troopers and were killed or captured. Before engaging in the fight, orders had been given to prevent the killing of any but the fighting strength of the village. But in a struggle of this character, it is impossible at all times to discriminate, particularly when in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, such as the one the troops were then engaged in, the squaws are as dangerous adversaries as the warriors, while Indian boys between ten and fifteen years of age were found as expert and determined in the use of their pistol and bow and arrow as the older warriors. Of these facts we had numerous illustrations. Major Benteen, in leading the attack of his squadron through the timber below the village, encountered an Indian boy scarcely fourteen years of age. He was well mounted and was endeavoring to make his way through the lines. The object these Indians had in attempting this movement we were then ignorant of, but soon learned to our sorrow. This boy rolled boldly toward the major, seeming to invite a contest. His youthful bearing and not being looked upon as a combatant induced Major Benteen to endeavor to save him by making peace signs to him and obtaining his surrender when he could be placed in a position of safety until the battle was terminated. But the young savage desired and would accept no such friendly concessions. He regarded himself as a warrior and the son of a warrior, and as such he purposed to do a warrior's part. With revolver in hand, he dashed at the major, who still could not regard him as anything but a harmless lad. Leveling his weapon as he rode, he fired, but either from excitement or changing positions of both parties, his aim was defective, and the shot whistled harmlessly by Major Benteen's head. Another followed in quick succession, but with no better effect. All this time the dusky little chieftain boldly advanced to lessen the distance between himself and his adversary. A third bullet was spent on its errand, and this time to some purpose, as it passed through the neck of the major's horse, close to the shoulder, making a final but ineffectual appeal to him to surrender, and seeing him still preparing to fire again, 
the major was forced in self-defense to level his revolver and dispatch him although as he did so it was with admiration for the plucky spirit exhibited by the lad and regret often expressed that no other course under the circumstances was left him attached to the saddle bow of the young indian hung a beautifully wrought pair of small moccasins elaborately ornamented with beads one of the major's troopers afterwards secured these and presented them to him these furnished the link of evidence by which we subsequently ascertained who the young chieftain was a title which was justly his both by blood and bearing we had gained the centre of the village and were in the midst of the lodges when on all sides could be heard the sharp crack of the indian rifles and the heavy responses from the carbines of the troopers after disposing of the smaller and scattering parties of warriors who had attempted a movement down the valley and in which some were successful there was but little opportunity left for the successful employment of mounted troops as the indians by this time had taken cover behind logs and trees and under the banks of the streams which flowed through the centre of the village from which stronghold it was impracticable to dislodge them by the use of mounted men a large portion of the command was at once ordered to fight on foot and the men were instructed to take advantage of the trees and other natural means of cover and fight the indians in their own style crook's sharpshooters had adopted this method from the first and with telling effect slowly but steadily the indians were driven from behind the trees and those who escaped the carbine bullets posted themselves with their companions who were already firing from behind the banks one party of troopers came upon a squaw endeavoring to make her escape leading by the hand a little white boy a prisoner in the hands of the indians who doubtless had been captured by some of their war parties during a raid upon the settlements who and where his parents were or whether still alive or murdered by the indians will never be known as the squaw finding herself as prisoner about to be surrounded by the troops and her escape cut off determined with savage malignity that the triumph of the latter should not embrace the rescue of the white boy casting her eyes quickly in all directions to convince herself that escape was impossible she drew from behind her blanket a huge knife and plunged it into the almost naked body of her captive the next moment retributive justice reached her in the shape of a well-directed bullet from one of the troopers carbines before the men could reach them life was extinct in the bodies of both squaw and her unknown captive the desperation with which the indians fought may be inferred from the following seventeen warriors had posted themselves in a depression in the ground which enabled them to protect their bodies completely from the fire of our men and it was only when the indians raised their heads to fire that the troopers could aim with any prospect of success all efforts to drive the warriors from this point proved abortive and resulted in severe loss to our side they were only vanquished at last by our men securing positions under cover and picking them off by sharpshooting as they exposed themselves to get a shot at the troopers finally the last one was dispatched in this manner in a deep ravine near the suburbs of the village 
The dead bodies of thirty-eight warriors were reported after the fight terminated. Many of the squaws and children had very prudently not attempted to leave the village when we attacked it, but remained concealed inside their lodges. All these escaped injury, although when surrounded by the din and wild excitement of the fight and in close proximity to the contending parties, their fears overcame some of them, and they gave vent to their despair by singing the death song, a combination of weird-like sounds which were suggestive of anything but musical tones. As soon as we had driven the warriors from the village and the fighting was pushed to the country outside, I directed Romeo, the interpreter, to go around to all the lodges and assure the squaws and children remaining in them that they would remain unharmed and kindly cared for. At the same time, he was to assemble them in the large lodges designated for that purpose, which were standing near the center of the village. This was quite a delicate mission, as it was difficult to convince the squaws and children that they had anything but death to expect at our hands. It was perhaps ten o'clock in the forenoon, and the fight was still raging, when, to our surprise, we saw a small party of Indians collecting on a knoll a little over a mile below the village, and in the direction taken by those Indians who had effected an escape through our lines at the commencement of the attack, my surprise was not so great at first as i imagined that the indians we saw were those who had contrived to escape but having procured their ponies from the herd had mounted them and were then anxious spectators of the fight which they felt themselves too weak in numbers to participate in in the meantime the herds of ponies belonging to the village on being alarmed by the firing of the shots of the contestants had from a sense of imagined security or custom rushed into the village where details of the troopers were made to receive them california joe who had been moving about in a promiscuous and independent manner came galloping into the village and reported that a large herd of ponies was to be seen nearby and requested authority and some men to bring them in the men were otherwise employed just then but he was authorized to collect and drive in the herd if practicable he departed on his errand and i had forgotten all about him and the ponies when in the course of a half an hour i saw the herd of nearly three hundred ponies coming on the gallop toward the village driven by a couple of squaws who were mounted and had been concealed nearby no doubt while bringing up the rear was California Joe, riding his favorite mule and whirling about his head a long lariat, using it as a whip in urging the herd forward. He had captured the squaws while endeavoring to secure the ponies, and very wisely had employed his captives to assist in driving the herd. By this time the group of Indians already discovered outside our lines had increased until it numbered upwards of a hundred. Examining them through my field-glass, I could plainly perceive that they were all mounted warriors. Not only that, but they were armed and comparisoned in full war costume, nearly all wearing the bright-colored war-bonnets and floating their lance pennants constant ascensions to their numbers were to be seen arriving from beyond the hill of which they stood all this seemed inexplicable 
A few Indians might have escaped through our lines when the attack on the village began, but only a few, and even those must have gone with little or nothing in their possession save their rifles and perhaps a blanket. Who could these new parties be, and from whence came they? To solve these troublesome questions I sent for Romeo, and taking him with me to one of the lodges occupied by the squaws, I interrogated one of the latter as to who were the Indians to be seen assembling on the hill below the village. She informed me, to a surprise on my part almost equal to that of the Indians at our sudden appearance at daylight, that just below the village we then occupied, and which was a part of the Cheyenne tribe, were located in succession the winter villages of all the hostile tribes of the southern plains with which we were at war, including the Arapahoes, Kiowas, and remaining band of Cheyennes, the Comanches, and a portion of the Apaches, that the nearest village was about two miles distance, and the others stretched along through the timbered valley to the one furthest off, which was not over ten miles. What was to be done? For I needed no one to tell me that we were certain to be attacked, and that, too, by greatly superior numbers, just as soon as the Indians below could make their arrangements to do so. And they had probably been busily employed at these arrangements ever since the sound of firing had reached them in the early morning, and had been reported from village to village. Fortunately, affairs took a favorable turn in the combat in which we were then engaged, and the firing had almost died away. Only here and there, where some warrior still maintained his position, was the fight continued. Leaving as few men as possible to look out for these, I hastily collected and reformed my command, and posted them in readiness for the attack which we all felt was soon to be made, for already, at different points and in more than one direction we could see more than enough warriors to outnumber us, and we knew they were only waiting the arrival of the chiefs and warriors from the lower village before making any move against us. In the meantime, our temporary hospital had been established in the center of the village where the wounded were receiving such surgical care as circumstances would permit. Our losses had been severe. Indeed, we were not then aware how great they had been. Hamilton, who rode at my side as we entered the village, and whose soldierly tones I heard for the last time as he calmly cautioned his squadron, Now, men, keep cool, fire low, and not too rapidly, was among the first victims of the opening charge, having been shot from his saddle by a bullet from an Indian rifle. He died instantly. His lifeless remains were tenderly carried by some of his troopers to the vicinity of the hospital. Soon afterwards, I saw four troopers coming from the front bearing between them in a blanket a wounded soldier. Galloping to them, I discovered Colonel Barnett's, another troop commander, who was almost in a dying condition, having been shot by a rifle bullet directly through the body in the vicinity of the heart. Of Major Elliot, the officer second in rank, nothing had been seen since the attack at daylight, when he rode with his detachment into the village. He, too, had evidently been killed, but as yet we knew not where or how he had fallen. 
Two other officers had received wounds, while the casualties among the enlisted men were also large. The sergeant major of the regiment, who was with me when the first shot was heard, had not been seen since that moment. We were not in as effective condition by far as when the attack was made, yet we were soon to be called upon to contend against a foe immensely superior to the one with which we had been engaged during the early hours of the day. The captured herds of ponies were carefully collected inside our lines as so guarded as to prevent their stampede or recapture by the Indians. Our wounded and the immense amount of captured property in the way of ponies, lodges, etc., as well as our prisoners, were obstacles in the way of our attempting an offensive movement against the lower villages. To have done this would have compelled us to divide our forces, when it was far from certain that we could muster strength enough united to repel the attacks of the combined tribes. On all sides of us the Indians could now be seen in considerable numbers, so that from being the surrounding party as we had been in the morning, we now found ourselves surrounded and occupied the position of defenders of the village. Fortunately for us, as the men had been expending a great many rounds, Major Bell, the quartermaster, with whom a small escort was endeavoring to reach us with fresh supply of ammunition, had by constant exertion and hard marching succeeded in doing so, and now appeared on the ground with several thousand rounds of carbine ammunition, a reinforcement greatly needed. He had no sooner arrived safely than the Indians attacked us from the direction from which he came. How he had managed to elude their watchful eyes I never could comprehend unless their attention had been so completely absorbed in watching our movements inside as to prevent them from keeping an eye out to discover what might be transpiring elsewhere. Issuing a fresh supply of ammunition to those most in want of it, the fight soon began generally at all points of the circle. From such in reality had our line of battle become a continuous and unbroken circle of which the village was about the center notwithstanding the great superiority in numbers of the indians they fought with excessive prudence and of lack of that confident manner which they usually manifest when encountering greatly inferior numbers a result due no doubt to the fate which had overwhelmed our first opponents besides the timber and all the configuration of the ground enabled us to keep our men concealed until their services were actually required it seemed to be the design and wish of our antagonists to draw us away from the village, but in this they were foiled. Seeing that they did not intend to press the attack just then, about two hundred of my men were ordered to pull down the lodges in the village and collect the captured property in huge piles and prepare a burning. This was done in the most effectual manner. When eventually everything had been collected, the torch was applied, and all that was left of the village were a few heaps of blackened ashes. Whether enraged at the sight of this destruction, or from other cause, the attack soon became general along our entire line, and pressed with so much vigor and audacity that every available trooper was required to aid in meeting these assaults. 
the Indians would push a party of well-mounted warriors close up to our lines in the endeavor to find a weak point through which they might venture, but in every attempt were driven back. I now concluded, as the village was off our hands and our wounded had been collected, that offensive measures might be adopted. To this end, several of the squadrons were mounted and ordered to advance and attack the enemy wherever force sufficient was exposed to be a proper object of attack, but at the same time be cautious as to the ambuscades. Colonel Weir, who had succeeded to the command of Hamilton's squadron, Colonels Benteen and Myers with their respective squadrons, all mounted, advanced, and engaged the enemy. The Indians resisted every step taken by the troops, while every charge made by the latter was met or followed by a charge from the Indians, who continued to appear in large numbers at unexpected times and places. The squadrons acting in support of each other and the men in each being kept well in hand were soon able to force the line held by the Indians to yield at any point assailed. This being followed up promptly, the Indians were driven at every point and forced to abandon the field to us. Yet they would go no further than they were actually driven. It was now about three o'clock in the afternoon. I knew that the officer left in charge of the train and eighty men would push after us, follow our trail, and endeavor to reach us at the earliest practicable moment. From the tops of some of the highest peaks, or round hills in the vicinity of the village, I knew the Indians could reconnoiter the country for miles in all directions. I feared if we remained as we were then, until the following day, the Indians might in this manner discover the approach of our train and detach a sufficient body of warriors to attack and capture it, and its loss to us, aside from that of its guard, would have proven most serious, leaving us in the heart of the enemy's country in midwinter totally out of supplies for both men and horses. By actual count we had in our possession 875 captured ponies, so wild and unused to white men that it was difficult to herd them. What we were to do with them was puzzling, as they could not have been led had we been possessed by the means of doing this. Neither could we drive them as the Indians were accustomed to do. And even if we could take them with us, either the one way or the other, it was anything but wise or desirable on our part to do so, as such a large herd of ponies constituting so much wealth in the eyes of the Indians would have been too tempting a prize to the warriors who had been fighting us all the afternoon, and to the effect their recapture they would have followed and waylaid us day and night with every prospect of success until we should have arrived at a place of safety. Besides, we had upwards of sixty prisoners in our hands, to say nothing of our wounded to embarrass our movements. We had achieved a great and important success over the hostile tribes. The problem now was how to retain our advantage and steer safely through the difficulties which seemed to surround our position. The Indians had suffered a telling defeat, involving great losses in life and valuable property, could they succeed, however, in depriving us of the train and supplies, and in doing this accomplish the killing or capture of the escort, it would go far to offset the damage we had been able to inflict upon them and render our victory an empty one. 
As I deliberated on these points in the endeavor to conclude upon that which would be our wisest course, I could look in nearly all directions and see the warriors at a distance collected in groups on the tops of the highest hills, apparently waiting and watching our next move that they might act accordingly. To guide my command safely out of the difficulties which seemed just then to beset them, I again had recourse to the maxim in war which teaches a commander to do that which his enemy neither expects or desires him to do. End of chapter 15, part 2